I'm Jody Lee Lipes, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? It's going okay. How's it going with you? It's a delightful, fair evening here in July. Survived the 4th of July, hunkered down, keeping a dog from freaking out and keeping a baby from waking up. Well, I don't think a lot of people outside of Los Angeles understand the war zone that L.A. turns into. I I swear, if L.A.'s story was being made today, Steve Martin would do something about the illegal fireworks inside that movie. It's true. And uh, a friend of ours, actually, whose name is Jamie Andrews, she used to have a 4th of July party at her house. And she lived in... Let us just say the neighborhood where we went to interview Rachel Morrison oh, in sure. that neighborhood. It's a so nice it's a very nice neighborhood. Yeah. yeah, it's a good area. And it was just nothing but a nonstop barrage of illegal fireworks. And the last time we went to our friend Jamie's house, the house up the hill from hers actually caught fire. It was just pure insanity. I've never seen anything like it. And it was like, I never want to come to this party again. Uh, not because I don't like Jamie, because Jamie's awesome, but mostly because you couldn't have a conversation without an explosion going off 15 feet from your head that was shot by somebody not at the party. No one at the party was lighting off fireworks. And uh, it was terrifying. And I can only imagine if you were someone who'd ever been in a war, it would be way worse. Yes. In fact, I'm going to encourage any of our listeners, if they are not familiar with Los Angeles and the 4th of July, to actually go ahead and uh, Google 4th of July Los Angeles and watch a couple of those videos of all of the illegal fireworks that are going off. Like um, people who live up in the hills have been taking these videos and it's just nuts. As far as you can see, like there are no fireworks legal in L.A. L.A. has a, a no safe and sane. It's, it's a desert. It, yeah, we're, we're not supposed to have fireworks here. And the the mayor, Garcetti, goes out and reminds people, hey, look, there are no fireworks that are that are okay yeah. here. Not sparklers, not anything. But when you see the videos from Fourth of July, it just looks like there is a war going on. It there is like it is everywhere. Yeah. It is rampant. A colorful war, a very colorful war v- of you know, very colorful. But of course, there's also then uh, there was a fire off the 14. I'm sure it was caused by by fireworks. There was fires up in Santa Clarita. Well, and, was, and also, not for nothing, yesterday, which was the day after the Fourth of July, as we're recording this, uh, L.A. had literally the worst air in the world. No city had worse air, and and we were all advised to not leave our houses all day, as if we haven't had enough of that this year. <laughs> uh, yes, it's, the uh, the air quality in Los Angeles did uh, did peak at number one, uh, number one for, yeah. for 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 worst air quality. So bad. so uh, terrible segue here, but uh, so who is on the show? Uh, hey, on the show today is uh, someone you interviewed, Jody Lee Lipes amazing amazing cinematographer and if i i, I want to tease everybody with this i'm always kind of asking people for like practical advice that would be helpful for people and i feel like he gave me the simplest most practical advice anyone has ever given us mm, okay Su- super simple if you're making a short film or a commercial next weekend you you could use it if you're making a marvel you know giant monster smash hulk movie next week you could use this advice it was very very helpful and I think that it's something that a lot of DPs just do in their heads, but he, he has a, a technique 
So listen to the interview for this awesome technique. Nice tease. <laughs> you, yeah. Now, you know, I was going to listen to it anyway, but now I'm really going to listen to it. <laughs> no, he, he was great. And it was, it was fun because we're interviewing him because uh, we're looking at everybody on Zoom. Literally in his childhood bedroom. He was in his, his bedroom when he was a kid. Aww. But uh, Joey Lee Lipes, for those of you who are not familiar with him, he worked with Lena Dunham a lot. He shot her first feature, which was uh, Tiny Furniture. He was also one of the main cinematographers on Girls, the HBO series. He shot an amazing indie film called Martha Marcy May Marlene, which I kept calling Mars. I, 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 I screwed up the first name and I felt like an idiot. And maybe Ben Katz left it in. We'll see. I'm okay looking like an idiot. It's it's a really cool film. And his newest uh, project is I Know This Much Is True, which is on HBO and is a gorgeous show. And what's interesting is that he's somebody who his stuff has a real gritty down and, and very real feel to it. That's that's kind of one of the signatures that he brings to something. But I Know This Much Is True is a super technical show because Mark Ruffalo plays identical twins and there was there was a downtime where Mark Ruffalo went off and like gained a bunch of weight and made his hair look different for all the twinning shots. So they had to be outrageously technical but he still gets this uh, very naturalistic look. That's amazing. All right, that that's exciting. So Ben, what do we have for a close focus today? Uh, we wanted to talk about something that's kind of been in the news a little bit and it's a thing that, you know, we've probably touched upon here a few times and it's Quibi. Oh, yes, Quibi. Quibi, which is uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg's streaming service. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who famously once said of his employees, if you don't come in here on Saturday, don't bother coming in here on Sunday. <laughs> um, Not Monday. <laughs> no, well, yes, I think you understand the joke now. But uh, Katzenberg, founder of DreamWorks, he was a former CEO of Disney at one point, I believe. You know, he's a huge successful mogul and he decided to figure out how to bring short form high production value basically tv shows to our phones and it has been a monumental failure unfortunately Ooh. okay how, how do you know it's been a failure well uh they were uh, supposedly it, it was a two billion dollar startup and their goal was i believe to have two million paid subscribers by the end of this year it so far has failed to hit even 30 percent of its first year subscribers goal, apparently. Uh, yeah, that is according to Forbes. And it's not really an expensive thing. It's five bucks a month. And their whole model is like premium television style original material. You can get it only get there. And uh, I actually had a meeting at Quibi before they launched to pitch them a project. And uh, they showed me then kind of like a, how, how the app would work. And I thought it was actually pretty interesting that uh, they shoot stuff to be viewed 16 by 9, but they know a lot of people watch it 9 by 16 so that holding the phone vertically. So when they're editing their shows, they have to basically be able to reframe for 9 by 16 uh, at, any, at any given time. And then they literally would do two outputs of the show, one in 16 by 9, one by 9 by 16. And it could uh, detect if you turned your phone and it would switch from one to the other, which I thought was kind of clever. Uh, I, I, I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but I spoke to a post person who was responsible for part of that for one of those shows and i'm sure they have a bunch of different post people in a lot of different shows so uh, they should be safe but he basically told me that that whole thing was a massive clusterfuck and that really what they were doing is they were shooting 16 by 9 and then he was being asked to just you know 
make up a nine by 16 out of that. So in other words, pull a vertical out of that horizontal. And uh, there was a lot of stuff that didn't exactly work. And the, the number one technical guideline, supposedly from executives who were not technical, was no black bars. So meaning yeah. that if you couldn't pull it out correctly, you had to like zoom way the hell in so Oof. that no one would see any black and that I was like, oh, well, because, you know, there is a way that you could do it. You could frame everything really loosely, shoot really wide. And he's like, no, they didn't do that, any of that. They didn't do that. What they did is they framed it for, you know, 16 by 9. And then, you know, in the end, they were being told to figure it out. So, But it, it's a deeply star-driven uh, channel. They've got, you know, people like Liam Hensworth and... Uh Chris Evans that, you know, they've got real, real star power on there. They've got, oh, no, yeah. you know, your reboot of Reno 911. There was a ton of stuff that was going on yeah. on there, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think it's an interesting idea. There was a story that was going around today about uh, Gal Gadot had gone in there to pitch something that was like very fierce and feminist and woman forward. And Katzenberg had, had said something to the effect of like, oh, you know, what we should do is something like the Jane Fonda workout with starring you. And uh, her, and according to the the article I read, it's like her face visibly fell. Like, oh, oh. gotcha. And it's <laughs> and it's like you know, uh, I, I I don't know. I mean, as I I won't shut up about. Frankly, I've done a web series, and I think and I love short form. I think short form is is a blast, and I do think that people love to watch stuff on their phones. But I do find that when we try and figure out how to make new media work like old media tends to not work i'm not going to say never works but it's it's hard it, it's hard to say let's do high-end television for your phone it's just it's odd at that same meeting i had with someone who was working on post they told me that they had a, a visit to the set one day and um they were talking to some of the stars uh, who were in this quibi series and he said that they were sparing no expense and one of the one of the stars actually said to him hey you know this rate is low for me typically but i'll do this I'll do this every day if they ask me to, because he was getting paid an obscene amount of money for the very, very short period of time he had to work that day. Yeah. So yeah. I think it was something in the neighborhood of a hundred thousand dollars for two hours of work. Well, I mean, if you have a big enough name, then yeah. that really might represent that, that kind of a return, you know, like I'm not, I'm not, I don't know who the actor was, but let, let's pretend it was George Clooney. He, probably two hours of his life is probably worth that. Like, they might get that many subscribers. I think it's interesting to be talking about dipping subscribership the, in the week that is something we had talked about months ago. Uh, Hamilton played on Disney Plus. Oh, yeah, and, sure did. And that was a $75 million acquisition on the part of Disney. And as it appears to be fully zeitgeisted at this point, probably the best $75 million that Disney ever spent, you know, like just a really wise investment because they didn't have to make anything new. The show, the recording was from uh, 2016. I mean, I'm sure they had to do a lot of new post stuff, editing or color grading or, you know, sound mixing or whatever, but like they didn't have to, they didn't have the burden of creating the whole thing from scratch. And they released it on the 4th of July weekend. And it was, you know, all anyone has been talking about is, is Hamilton. Meanwhile, Quibi, I think, has not made an event out of literally anything they've done. You know, a quick shout out to uh, Declan Quinn, who shot uh, Hamilton, who oh, is nice. going to be on our, our show uh, eventually. We've been holding his uh, episode because the movie that we talk about for essentially the whole time is not yet been released but i believe it's coming up soon and i have to say that 
boy, Hamilton sure was shot well, too. I mean, you felt like you never forgot you were watching a play, but at moments where you really did need those close-ups or those things, they're all there, and it's done in a really, really smart method. So I think if you've got a big screen and a nice sound system, you can definitely get the theatrical sort of uh, stage experience. I think if you're watching it on your phone, uh, you, you may not have such a good time, but, you know, what's wrong with you? Don't watch Hamilton on your phone. <laughs> but, like, you know, you compare... So compare what Disney Plus has done. And I feel like Disney Plus, outside of like basically owning everything everyone wants to see, you know, Star Wars and Marvel and all that stuff and Pixar, but like they've had basically two original things that were massive hits and that's the the Mandalorian and Hamilton and those are drivers of subscribe of subscriptions. Meanwhile, Quibi, I feel like hasn't had its water cooler thing. Now, if they ever do have it, like that's the difference, and I like to remind myself when I when I want to sign the uh, death certificate of a service like Quibi that like Amazon Prime tried to make TV series for like three or four years before they really found their correct stride. So did Hulu. Netflix had a few misfires out of the gate, and you know Quibi maybe hasn't figured out what the thing is that people want to watch on that format. I I agree. I also think that Quibi might be a little bit too big to fail, uh, and the fact that they've got so many billions raised for that uh they might just become a streaming service too maybe if the model of putting all these little short form things on your phone doesn't work uh maybe people want to see matthew mcconaughey and you know chris evans and all these people on a bigger screen maybe they want to have a you know a teaser experience on their phone and they want to then go see the full the full run of these things in a more serious and meaningful environment like your living room or something yeah. like that so it's interesting knows? how that yeah. works like like masterclass uh made a, a roku app mm-hmm. and i w- i'd already signed up for masterclass uh, a long time ago and i have to admit when i had to watch it on my computer or on my phone i didn't really wa- you know I, w- I would watch one and be really intensely into it but as soon as i could put it on my tv it's like hey i can uh, you know watch this while i'm doing the dishes or something and suddenly i'm like huh I'm, i find myself more interested in the one about gardening than i maybe would have been otherwise or the one about hostage negotiations or whatever i think there's more more weight behind it when it's on your bigger screen you know, the hard part for Quibi, if they put it on the big screen, is making TVs that can swivel into the 9 by 16 position and, and detect don't worry. it automatically. They can just use the, the, the 16 by 9 version. You don't have to ever look at the 9 by 16. Yeah, you never and, need to watch anything on Snapchat. It's all the 9 by 16. I mercifully do not have Snapchat and never will. <laughs> Nor TikTok. In fact, you know, usually any sort of thing that is uh, nine by sixteen is uh, is is already fallen like five notches in my book. It's not. It's not serious. So. You're such an aspect snob. ratio elitist. To- totally snob. All right. Well, Ben, we should probably get to the interview now with uh, Jody Lee Lipes. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. We are here now doing uh, Across America into the bedroom that you were raised in, I believe, uh, with amazing cinematographer Jody Lee Lipes. Uh, am I correct? Is this your actual uh, childhood bedroom that you're in right now? It is. It's totally my childhood bedroom. It's a different color than it was when I was growing up, but it used to have wallpaper with jockeys running around <laughs> the room, but um, like through all of high school, but now it's it's Blue. Blue. Uh, th- I, I, I uh, personally don't have access to any of my childhood bedrooms anymore, so it, it, I can't imagine how weird it must be to go back to, uh, you know, the room that you were in in high school. Uh, before we, we even get going, I uh, kind of want to ask my standard question, which is when you read a script, 
what is it that you see when the first time you're encountering a new piece of material? And I always used to ask the question, is it composition? Is it lighting? But I, I feel like enough people schooled me on that, that I, I've kind of given that specific line of questioning up. But like, what is the thing you see as you're reading a script for the very first time? Well, I always feel kind of ashamed and uh, inadequate because when I finish reading this script, I always say to myself, oh, I forgot to think about how it's going to look. <laughs> I'm supposed to, that's what I'm supposed to be thinking about because I'm a cinematographer. But usually it's really the story that you're engaged in if it's good. Mm. And to me, like, that's what it's really all about is, is the narrative. And, you know, I, it takes me a lot more time, I think, to get to a visual idea of something. Mm -hmm. And I also, I like to try to let the filmmaker lead or the director lead that journey, because I think, you know, there's different ways to look at something. And I obviously like to be involved in determining what it is, but I like sort of the jumping off mm. point to come from the director who honestly often has been with the project a lot longer than I have at that point and hopefully has a strong perspective or like at least like the nugget of something that will like turn into informing what the visuals are. I'd love to talk about uh, a lot of your work has like, it feels like we almost dropped a documentary. Like I'm thinking about Marsha, Marcy, May, Marlene. There's kind of a fly on the wall quality to it. I mean, it's very cinematic or whatever, but it doesn't feel overly, overly stylized. And I know mm -hmm. this much is true. It's not a super style. It, it, it has an amazing style and amazing look to it. But it, again, it feels like it's taking place in the very real world, but it also if I'm not mistaken, Mark Ruffalo, like you, you shot giant chunks of it at radically different times. And so for these twinning shots where Mark Ruffalo is like thin and has a goatee and then he's kind of fatter and balder and old, you know, kind of, I mean, they're twins, but he, he's kind of more haggard looking. And there was like a period of time where he gained a bunch of weight and stuff like that. Like how to me, like the puzzle, uh, solving the puzzle of how to how to even set up that kind of a shoot is fascinating. Can you talk about how you <laughs> broke the code for how to do that? So I know this much is true is about twins. It's about identical twin brothers. But the protagonist is Dominic, who is the is sort of the healthy brother. Yeah. And Thomas is the schizophrenic brother. And so the film takes place from 1913 through the 90s. And throughout the course of the film, we see Dominic and Thomas as, you know, elementary school age children. And we see them in college age. And then we see them um, as adults. And over the course of the film, even though it's sort of not told in <laughs> chronological order, Dominic and Thomas become very physically different because Thomas is schizophrenic. He's on medication, he's institutionalized periodically. So their bodies really do grow apart. So because Dominic is, is the protagonist, um, the vast majority of the film is about him. And there is much less of the film that Thomas is in. So for that reason, the big scheduling thing, knowing that like Mark was going to have to like do one part and then like have a dramatic weight change during a hiatus of some kind, and then come back as the other part. We knew we wanted to lead that off with Dominic because he's the protagonist and it's a lot more shooting days with him. So even though Mark had gained some weight for his previous role in the, the Todd Haynes film that he had just finished, Dark Water, he then like lost that quickly to get sort of like under his normal weight. 
So we started by shooting the first 17 weeks of the show with Mark as Dominic, which we call the Mm A-side. Then we took, or Mark took a period of six weeks to gain 30 to 35 pounds. Wow. Only six weeks. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah. So during those six weeks, we shot a lot of the material with Dominic and Thomas as their younger selves, like Phil Edinger playing college age, Dominic and Thomas. And then when they're they're in elementary school and also the story about their grandfather, Domenico, coming to America. Then when we came back, we had, you know, just I think it was something like three or four weeks of work with Thomas. So that was sort of the overarching kind of like scheduling concept, which is just sort of forced by the idea that like Mark has to gain the weight during this time. We also had Gabe Fazio, who's an actor, who's actually in the show. He plays the insurance uh, guy after Dominic uh, gets in a car accident. Um, So Gabe was Mark's acting partner throughout. So he played the opposite brother. And Gabe is an incredible actor. He gained the weight. He lost the weight. Whoa, really? He, you know, knowing he would never be on screen... Wow, that's commitment. <laughs> he's he's yeah, he's incredible. And, well, he's uh, on screen like are we we're seeing over the shoulder shots and stuff, so we're seeing like a piece of his head or shoulder. Or hand, yes, right? there is yeah the shots that are not like augmented and yeah mm-hmm. there is there are some of those. We really need to control the light because like much more than I want to because if we don't if we don't really think about this on the A side, it's going to be impossible to match the B side. And it could be like even more expensive if we're not like really trying to like carefully control this environment, not to restrict, but to say like, okay, we're looking 360 all the time. So like we have to control the light that way, Yeah, you know, and we have to have lifts on every window. We have to like, you know, do all this stuff. So it became like a bigger machine in some ways, like specifically for the light control. And that was like a real challenge. And, and Ken Shibata, the gaffer and Johnny Herbs Chan, the key grip were just incredible and just took very meticulous notes and advised me throughout about like well you know we can take this approach but like it's going to be a bigger thing to control like in four months and just constantly kind of like thinking about both sides of it while we're doing the first side and really having no you know it's one thing if you're like okay well like this is the shot this is the shot this is the shot it's not like that it's like we're just kind of looking at everything all the time and rolling for 22 and a half minutes all the time and on film. And so it's like you're trying to like run a meter and like grab some like while, you know, you're shooting because, you know, the sun changes, clouds come in and out. And then it's like, what part are you using later? Have you just run the scene 18 times in one go? Yeah. And what are we matching to and which take and that, you know, everything's changing all the time. So it was very like hectic feeling. And I think that's one of the things that Derek is so great at is making everybody feel like they're walking on a tightrope <laughs> and they're doing things that are like out of their comfort uh-huh. zone. And then that's when your work gets better. So basically, okay, so we're shooting the A side and the B side sometimes three and four months apart. And it's now like almost the opposite season. So the sun is in a different place. That was my, my question was like, yeah, even just weather or anything could, could be so different. And it's yeah. and it, the way you've done it is so kind of like a lot of your other work is so naturalistic. So it, it, it's kind of invisible. You know, my critical mind is always deconstructing how anything I'm watching is is, is, is given to me. And, uh, you know, one of my all-time favorite movies is the David Cronenberg movie Dead Ringers. And I can tell you that how they do it. That was a big reference for us, actually. Oh, yeah. was it? We, 
yeah, Derek felt that that was sort of one of the least distracting examples of a twinning film. But back then, that was like the first time they, they were using motion control and all these other mm-hmm. things to be able to do traveling shots and moving shots. And they were, mm-hmm. you know, doing traveling mats so they could both exit the same side of the frame. Stuff that's not hard to do today, you know, even in After Effects or something, some of it. But it was groundbreaking at the time. No one had ever done any of that stuff. And so much of it also was just the performance of... of uh, Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons. Yeah, totally. That that movie was big for us. Less less for like the fact that it was maybe a technological leap, which I didn't even know. It's interesting to know. But more because Cronenberg had a very like subtle touch with it. You yeah. know, it wasn't really like in your face. It wasn't as distracting as it can often be. Another film that I feel like balanced that really well was Adaptation. Oh, for um, sure. Adaptation went to like handheld shots that were like that, which they couldn't have mm-hmm. done in Dead Ringers. Yeah, which is like a total like Spike Jones kind of yeah. way of sort of taking it to the next level and like making it feel more naturalistic um, in this very like special effects heavy environment, um, which I respect so much. Um, but I remember at the time that I was first starting to talk about this project with Derek, I was working on the Mr. Rogers film and Peter Seraf, one of the producers on that film told me, oh yeah, I was one of the producers on Adaptation a long time ago. And I re- he was like, I remember Lance Accord and Spike Jones had this sort of idea. It was sort of like, you have to kind of have one shot where you like see them together or like one shot that kind of like sells that they're both in the room and then like forget about it and that's it. Hmm. And so like, you know, don't overdo it. You don't have to overdo it. Like just find this moment and like, that's what it is. Well, I was going to ask you about that because like if you don't know where the actors are going and you're kind of following them almost like you're making a real documentary about the scene, how much pre-production conversation has gone into the visual approach to the to how you're going to do it if you literally don't know where the actors are going to go and what's going to be in the shot? So you can't know in a circumstance like that exactly where the lighting should be, right? It's sort of like broader choices than that and then like knowing what feels right within those sort of broader choices that you've established so it's kind of like the the look and the texture of the film and the way the film is exposed and like the amount of the negative we're using and the aspect ratio and all those things like the sort of amalgamation of all those things together like is there's like a baked in feeling to just the texture of it you know and I think that there's a, a style just to the feeling of like the image and then like to the way that Derek is too tight and to the way that the camera position is always just a little bit wrong. It's always like not in the right place. You know, it's always like you're always finding it. Like someone would never walk right up to the lens. Like you, ha- if they're walking towards the camera, like you have to like adjust to hold them, you know, like they're all the, so that stuff is baked in. And then it's like, you know, early decision was like no dolly. Like there's no dolly shots in the whole show. There's no vertical moves in the whole show so it's only pans and tilts and zooms and so like right there that's like a huge choice and it really defines where the camera can go and it defines how the actors feel and how limitless their choices can be when you know there's no dolly track in the middle of the floor yeah Yeah, so it's kind of like it's a bunch of rules that are like often broken but end up creating like a, a visual sensibility that's really baked in but yeah like in terms of the lighting and trying to accommodate somebody being able to go anywhere 
but you're always taking this risk and sort of like balancing like how far you can go with like, well, I hope they don't sit over there because that is maybe not going to be on the negative, but I don't think they're going to, I feel like it's probably going to be over here and then you start rolling and then they sit there, they sit in the place you didn't expect (laughs) they would. And then like the next in between, you know, when you're reloading the mags, it's like, you know, okay, now we have to like figure out, okay, so how can we like, accommodate that chair without ruining like the feeling of this whole room and then you do the next take and they don't sit in that chair (laughs) so it's like you're always you're always chasing and that's just like how the the film the film ends up feeling i mean it's so out of control but then the remarkable thing is like editorially and the way that derek and the editors are so respectful and cognizant of the visuals which is not often the case it doesn't really like feel that way a lot of the time like sometimes you know there's like a, a kinetic energy and a kind of like grabbed feeling but often I, I like watch an edit of a scene and it's so like smooth and kind of controlled and it's like wow how did they pull <laughs> that out of the feeling that like in the room at the time yeah. um let's go back a little bit i think the first time i really noticed your work was in marcia marcy may marlene which is you know a brilliant brilliant thriller that i i had to cover I, I think i was writing for backstage years and years ago and i had to go to a screening of it so i went in like totally blind i didn't know anything about it when i walked in and it is a gorgeous film. It's it's suspenseful. It's kind of in a way like I feel like probably a lot of people would know your work from Girls or Tiny Furniture, like some of the Lena Dunham stuff that you've done. But to me, it's almost the opposite. It's like it's like such a tense kind of experience. What brought you to that project, and like how did you go about kind of crafting the the look of it? Martha was the first time I think as a DP that I felt like I had kind of worked out an aesthetic to a film like to how I wanted like the the film to be exposed and like feel and look and then like it worked you know like I was able to execute it with Sean so I'm really proud of that movie I love that movie and that and I learned a lot about just about like film like working with film on that movie um it was it was sort of like you know after school was like me just doing it without like having quite enough experience like understand what I was doing Mm -hmm. and I loved that movie too but then like Martha was a little bit more of like it was like a choice the way that it looked and felt yeah and just like the thing I was kind of like the most excited by working on that project was the idea that the protagonist is kind of like she's been in this cult and then she gets out of the cult and she goes to stay with her sister and her sister doesn't know what she's just been through or that she's just been in this cult and then the rest of the film is her sort of like remembering her experience in the cult and then being with her sister and then sort of like increasingly conflating now with then to the point where she's confused about whether she's in the past or the present and so like what I was really excited by was the way that we would be able to tell that story visually so that the audience kind of like felt that confusion and like the blurring of the past and the present Mm -hmm. and were you pulling references from stuff like images or were you um how do you go about building the strategy? And I'm talking like practically here, like do you, how, how do you record and figure out what your strategy is going to be for visuals on a movie? I think now in like the past few movies I've done, I've started to do this thing where I create kind of like a Bible for the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I 
take each scene and I rewrite each scene so that it's one sentence long. So I I work really hard to like find to like craft every word so that like all of the information I need about the scene is in this one sentence description of the scene and is is very clear to me and it's almost like cliff notes because I I feel like a lot of time in prep or like while you're shooting people get kind of like lost about where they are in the story and what is essential about this beat or like this moment like why is this scene in the story yeah why are we shooting this scene so i feel like by distilling it i can tell and i can scan it and i can see why it needs to be there and what's important to show and i can also then look at the previous scene very quickly and see like we're coming from here this is what this means this is how it's related to the following scene and then the scene after so I have these like sort of like cliff notes for for what a scene is and then I also like break down any kind of aesthetic stuff that's important like if there's multiple formats in the film like sort of color code it like this is this format or like this is these lenses and this mm-hmm. is you know it's sort of this is why and then I'll pull images for each scene whether they're for like produ- the production designer or for the gaffer or for the ACs or for the operator or whoever just as like whatever is relevant about it, I'll sort of like point them towards that. Um, and I'll share that document with everyone so everyone can see like what I'm thinking about and what to kind of like look out for like in the coming days or if there's like special equipment or whatever. And so by by doing that kind of breakdown where I feel like I, I really internalize the story because I've kind of like rewritten it and like distilled it in this way that's like super, super clear to me. And if there's scenes where I'm not really sure why it's in the film, then that might be something like I'll talk to the director about and maybe try to get more clarity about. And like in the process of really distilling the story like that, it helps me make specific visual decisions. Like for example, in the Mr. Rogers film that was you know directed by Marielle Heller, there's multiple formats. There's the format of the TV show that Mr. Rogers made. And then there's like our protagonist, Lloyd, and the camera format we use like in his life. And throughout the film, the these different worlds start to get mixed up and sort of like the program Mr. Rogers starts to kind of like infiltrate the, prota- the protagonist's consciousness and he has this kind of like fever dream where he ends up kind of like falling into the show and people from his life are conflated with characters from the show and so it's like there are these multiple formats that end up sort of like blending together and sort of getting mixed up Mm -hmm. and so then it's like what scene has what format and why and really like breaking that down in like a calculated way with a movie like that that you can plan that specifically yeah yeah um you know it can be really helpful because it it brings up these really specific questions like when does this transition happen and why is it on like a specific shot in the middle of a scene is it before the scene you know the scene starts that this transition occurs so like by really like breaking it down that way it helps me to kind of get really detailed about those things if I can be. A lot of the time you can't be detailed at all and you're just sort of responding to what's happening on the day. But a film like that, like the Mr. Rogers film, was very planned and meticulous in that way. And I mean, uh, not not to even get even more specific, but like, do you keep this all in like an online note? Is it on your phone? Like where do you compile all this stuff? 
I keep it in Google Drive so that I can like constantly be updating it and that so like everyone can just look at it on their phone but I also print it out yeah. and for me I feel like it's a way I can really like quickly refresh myself on like what it means and what it is and I have it in my pocket or like if I'm like working in a more like quiet slow pace like I have like a like piece of paper that I can you know look at and it has images on it and I can kind of like really like pour over Thank you so much for for sharing that with us, because I feel like that's it's something that I'm always trying to find. Like, what are the I mean, it's it's not a trick. It's it's a it's a technique. But like how, you know, someone who's listening to this, who's like approaching the first feature, what could they do to, you know, because a feature can be uh, such a daunting process. You know, it's just a huge project and, and you get you can get lost in it very quickly. And I'm, I'm always curious how people keep track of all of the arcs and all that stuff in their heads. Yeah, I think I think for especially for like a DP, it's a way of like visually breaking down what the movie is like mm-hmm. visually on paper and like color coding everything. So it's like like on Mr. Rogers, we used six different kinds of cameras. Right. So like to be able to see just by like looking at the color of a of a page. Yeah. What that scene is like, what camera that is, is like it's just a faster way for me to process. Yeah. And to like see it. Um, let's go back a little bit. I think something that our listeners would be interested in hearing about also is girls. I mean, you had worked with Lena Dunham on her, I think it was her first feature, Tiny Furniture, right? Yeah, she had made like a sort of long formish kind of film before that in school. Mm-hmm. And then this was like her kind of first like proper feature length film. Yeah. And uh, I've seen the film. I actually had to write about it for backstage as well. I remember having to watch it and it was sort of like early days of DSLR filmmaking. Uh, I And I'm pretty sure if I'm not mistaken that it was a DSLR film. Yeah, it was it was the first feature that was shot and released um, on a digital SLR. Yeah. But I mean, it like brilliantly announced kind of the voice that is Lena Dunham. But like when you're making a, a film like that, which I think is an extremely I mean, it's funny as hell, but it's a very risky. I mean, you know, it's 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 taking a lot of creative risks. It's walking the plank on a, on several ideas. When you're approaching that as a DP, are you ever encouraging someone who's a first time feature director to kind of rein it in or to be careful or to cover your ass or to, you know, like do do things to make sure that you can pull stuff, change it in post if, if it's uh, if it's more difficult material? No, I think I quite the opposite i have always been the person being like make the decision now and here and we're not gonna have another choice because if we don't it will be better mm-hmm. um if there's a mistake or a flaw that kind of emerges from us choosing a really specific way to show the story then that will make this movie more the way that it is and will like be endearing and be like specific to to you mm-hmm. you know so I've, I've always pushed really, really hard in scripted work to kind of not give yourself a way out. Um, and I think <laughs> around, you know, That's the awesome. time of, of Martha and, uh, and Tiny Furniture maybe like was the most I was like that maybe. Um, and I think in some way, you know, Lena is very, at the time, you know, we were just getting to know each other at the time and it was just a little, it was a $35,000 movie like that we just, it was like one of my friends was doing at her house with her mom and her sister in it. And that, you know, the crew was like six people. So it wasn't like, there wasn't like a lot of weight on us. You know, <laughs> it was kind of, but, but like at the same time, I was a little more experienced than Lena was like, that was like a big shoot for her. 
you know, like everything she had made before that was like her and like one other person or like her by herself. Well, pe- like people act like a $35,000 film is, is tiny and it is tiny. However, 35, you know, if, if it's coming out of your own personal pocket, 35,000 is, pro- is a, an enormous amount of money. Yeah. Well, I think at the same time, I think it's like, it's maybe a little bit easier to say that now, whereas the, you know, how long ago is this? Like almost 10 years ago, it was like a little bit more rare maybe to make movies like on this micro budget. I don't know. But, but like at that time we had like this really amazing relationship where it was like, she was just sort of like, go like, do like, what is this? How is this going to look like? how should we shoot it? And it was like, she was in it. So we didn't even have a monitor. So it was like, she was like, was that good? You know? And it's like our monitor was the back, you know, (laughs) it was like an inch and a half big. And so, so it was like, we had a very collaborative relationship, but I think in retrospect, like I was making a lot of those visual decisions and I feel like I should have been less, like forceful about them. I should have been like, I think listening more. And she was sort of like giving me too much control of that situation. And I hope I haven't watched the movie in many years, but I hope that it's not distracting how it looks. That's always sort of my worst fear. But then I think that relationship continued, you know, that movie led to girls, which she won South by Southwest. And there was an HBO like thing that started happening at that point and then Judd Apatow really liked the movie and so he kind of like shepherded it through the like pilot process at HBO and all you know then all of a sudden it was a TV show and I was very very much out of my depth and I was shooting Martha at the time and then they you know Lena started calling me and was like we're gonna do this TV show we really want you to do it and I was kind of like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, they're not, they're, no one's going to hire me to do something like that because I'm not qualified to do it. So, like, it's great. Thanks for calling, but like, leave me alone. And, she, you know, she kept calling, and then the producers started calling me, and I was kind of like annoyed because I was like, you, you guys don't understand. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never worked on a union show before. I've never, like, this scale is like totally not something I've ever experienced. I've never even like worked on a shoot of that size. So I was like, if you want me to do this, you have to like get my crew. You have to like understand, like, I don't know what I'm doing. So you have to have patience with that. You have to be like supporting me, not like criticizing me for that. Sort of like I was really pushing back on the idea of being a part of it. And they were like, no, no, no. Like we really want you to do this. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll prep this whole thing. And you guys can fire me after the first day if that's what you want to do. You know, it's sort of like, I know that's what's going to happen. So then, you know, we started shooting the pilot and it was like, um, I, the whole time I was like, well, I guess this, you know, this is my one day I got to like be on a set like this. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought they were going to call me that night. And, and then at breakfast the next day, Jenny Connor, the showrunner was like, Hey, Judd and I were talking last night and we would like you to direct the show if it gets picked up. And I realized it was like because Lena and I had been through Tiny Furniture together, which was a very collaborative experience where like just any actor director is like relying on everybody around them to help them. And then this is the same situation. It's like she's in the show and she's never been on a set like bigger than like six people. And now there's like a hundred people. Yeah. And I was like a little bit more experienced. So we were like working together and it was the same kind of thing. She's, was that take good just because she's nice and because she's collaborative. So that kind of, it ended up working out much better than I thought. And it ended up like that, you know, the show got picked up and we went on and did a whole season together and I got to direct some of it. But yeah, that was like a, a totally lucky 
like break <laughs> that kind of came from this like minuscule little movie that is only good because you know Lena is who she is and mm-hmm. um so I, I was lucky that I kind of like got to go along for the ride on that you know we're gonna run out of time but I did want to touch on two things do it, Hit it. <laughs> okay you did talk about a little bit about a beautiful day in the neighborhood and I love that that film was great I really liked it and so I just wanted to ask you about how you came to it I, I understand that you and Marielle Heller are were friends and mm-hmm. so how how did you um get to go work on that project yeah so um I was a directing, a writing and directing fellow at the Sundance um, Writing and Directing Labs years ago, and Marielle Heller was in my, the the same year that I was in the Director's Lab. So going through the Sundance Director's Lab is a very, very, like, bonding process. It's a very intense, very, like, scary, overwhelming, like, uh, life-changing kind of experience, and the six filmmakers who do it together are all like under that in that same pressure cooker and they all kind of like get really close in my or at least my year was like that and so many incredible filmmakers in my year that I was so lucky to meet but Mari was one of them and she was always very respectful that I was like I was trying to be a director in that point at that point in my life and she so she like I feel like she actively like tried to like not treat me like I was a DP which I always thought was like very sweet of her after Manchester by the Sea, I kind of, like my daughter was born the last week or week and a half of that shoot, and I, you know, I literally had to like jump on a plane and rush to the hospital. I just got to the hospital in time, and I was kind of like, okay, I think I need to uh, take a break and kind of like reevaluate my priorities here because I literally like came so close. Like when I was on the plane, I thought I had missed it. My dad told me that like. There was no way that I was going to get there in time. So I was like sitting on the plane with no internet and just the whole time just thinking to myself like, okay, so I missed this event in my life and just how horrible that is, my choices like leading up to that. So I kind of was like, okay, I'm not going to do movies raw. I'm just going to do commercials. I'm going to like focus on directing. And it was a long time and I was kind of like afraid to go back to movies and not really that interested in it but then my agent started saying like well there's this movie that Mari's doing and I really think you should read it and I was kind of like I don't know Mari and I are such good friends I don't want to like get into like a professional relationship with her it's just like scary to me and but they were like I really think you should read it and it was just one of those experiences where I when I read the script I just felt like so much emotion not just like, this is good, like, this is really good, I want to make this movie, but more like just like crying out loud reading it, you oh, know, wow. which is just not a feeling that I often have reading a screenplay. And it just felt like, oh, I think I have to do this movie. It's like with a sort of cliche thing that people always say they say to themselves that I like said <laughs> to myself for the first time. Yeah, so Mari and I started talking about it and her DP, um, Brandon Trost, was busy because he was making his own he's directing his own film and so that's the only reason I even had the opportunity yeah and it was just I don't know there was something like very very personal to me about that story it's hard for me to even put my finger on what it was even now but um yeah so that's how I was I was lucky enough to be a part of that project and did it did that uh reinvigorate your interest in shooting features you know obviously you're you know I know this much is true as a tv series but are, are you more into it yeah, I think um, when I was like in prep, I guess on Mister Rogers, it was 
I felt like, okay, I think now I finally understand what this job is. You know, I finally get like what I'm supposed to be doing and like how I'm supposed to be like breaking this story down to match with the way it looks in these very clear ways. And I think strangely, the way I came to that was through, you know, Mari and I really, really wanted to shoot film. And ultimately, Sony told us we could not shoot film. And that was very disappointing. But the process of trying to communicate to them how important it was to us was the vast majority of my prep. I stayed up like all night one night and I wrote basically just like an essay about like why it was really important to me. I've never done anything like that before, but it was like a really good essay. <laughs> and it was like, I thought it was like very powerful. And I built this whole like visual deck with the help of some of the producers and stuff. And then we kind of like presented it to Sony. Um, but it was like the process of doing that. I had to be so clear in articulating what the visual ideas behind the movie were and why we were making them. Mm. And that was like a real, an exercise I had never had to do at that level where I knew I was going to be in this like conference call with like 50 people who were like, this is bullshit. And I was going to have to like with a straight face say like, no, it's not like I really, this is really important. This is why it's, it's very clear why this is the right choice. You know, it was like that kind of like I had to really believe that and I did. Yeah, that that kind of led to me just having this clarity about it. And then the confusion of all of the different kinds of cameras, because we shot like one scene on film and then a lot of it on the Alexa Mini on Super 16 mode. And then we had like PAL cameras for the studio and PAL cameras for handheld and PAL and then like NTSC video cameras for the studio and NTSC cameras for handheld for the field. And like when we were using which one and all this stuff. So it was like the combination of having to broadly like justify the creative choices and then like organize this incredibly complex system of like when cameras, when and where and what country it's coming from and all that shit. Like that turned into one of those documents I was describing earlier, which was sort of like my Bible for the film and the clarity I needed on what each scene meant was because, you know, Mari and I were really going through the script together and really saying, like, is this scene, maybe this should be different. Actually, like, shouldn't he be, like, the stuffed animal from his childhood instead of this other thing in the dream? And, like, all of these things really were solidified through us talking about the script in a really detailed way. And so, like, that breakdown I was doing really informed those conversations. And I think if a director feels, or a producer, or whoever, feels that, like, you really know the story, that is only a good thing unless that person is a jerk. So, like, <laughs> it, it, it's like, unless they feel threatened by it yeah. or something. But, like, most people will be relieved and helped by that feeling of, like, oh, like, this person knows the script, like, backwards and forwards. And it's like, it makes them feel like you care because you do care. And yeah. to me, that's the only way I can like organize my thoughts. So that's why I do it. Not to like impress someone, but it's like, I think it, it does yield a good feeling among the people around you too. I'm always interested in how people break stuff down like that, because I think some, some of the people we talk to, I think just do it all in their head and they're able to catalog it all somehow mm -hmm. in their head. And then uh, like we talked to somebody, uh, Byron Warner, a few months ago who uses scriptation and like showed us one of his 
uh, you know, it's it's like this app that brings in PDFs and he annotates mm-hmm. the crap out of everything. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. so thorough and brilliant. And uh, but but I'm I'm just always interested in 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 that process. And also, uh, and I'm glad you kind of came back to what you were talking about. And I want to see if there's more to it. But sort of how you said that when you were doing that, you kind of fell back in love with the with the job too, right? More or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's also funny to me because it's like Mr. Rogers is very controlled and kind of like formal in a weird way it's very like decided on mm-hmm. and the shots are sort of like very composed and all that stuff. And then like all the vast majority of the planning I did on my next project, which is immediately after, which is, I know this much is true is just like, it's just totally out the window and that's okay. That's fine. And it's just, the, it's so far in the other direction. Like there are no shots. Yeah. There are no, there's nothing. And you just are like using your, emotion to react and your experience to react to what's happening and it was exhilarating in sort of like the opposite way and to me like ultimately you know if you're lucky enough to kind of like work on different kinds of projects or different forms or like commercials and music videos and documentaries and studio movies and teeny features and stuff like every time you go to like a new kind of project whether it's a new kind of story or a new working method or a new form or a different form than you've worked in in a long time, it really reinvigorates you and it really makes you take all of the experiences from these other worlds you've worked in and like incorporate them in a new way into this new thing. So like with Derek, it's like all about like, I want it to be really, really small. Like it's like a documentary. And then we're also doing these like massive lighting setups and so it's like you're drawing from like the verite films that i've made for a long time which are informed by the you know picture picture films on mr rogers that i watched when i was a little kid it all kind of like feeds itself and so i just i think the diversity of of the work is like one of the most exciting things to me and finally feeling like not uh I think I felt like kind of embarrassed about being a DP before. Like I felt like it wasn't kind of like the most important thing. Like I felt guilty about like, and I still feel this a little bit like lighting sort of like getting in the way or like, you know, needing to maintain consistency is like getting in the way of just a scene being shot smoothly without it being stopped or slowed down. Yeah. And so I think now I feel more like proud of doing this job that I want to like try really hard at it. And that like me giving everything I had on the last couple of films, like was a really good feeling and not holding back and saying like, this isn't the most important job. I'm not really going to try like that much, you know, (laughs) is sort of like, I think where I was in the past and like being a little bit insecure about it. Mm -hmm. And I think now I feel more confident. I feel like I like trying really hard is cool and it's like beautiful. And, um, that's where your best work comes. And right now, like I want to be a DP and that's just a new thing for me. Well, that's amazing. And I think that that's a really great place for us to leave it before we go. Is there any place uh, online where people can go to see your work? Obviously, you know, you have tons of work on every streaming platform and in, in theaters, but where would you recommend people go if they want to check out your work? Um, I guess my, my website, which is just my name.com. Yeah. I guess that's got like commercial work. Maybe people haven't seen or just like stuff that is old. Every, so, every DP yeah. that we have on here without fails, like my website's out of date. It's like, you know, you, you, you're kind of busy. <laughs> 
busy doing it. So, um, <laughs> so, but we'll, we'll put that link in the show notes. And again, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. It was great to have you. You too. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. So that was Jody Lee Leips. Jody, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure. Hope everyone goes out and checks out I Know This Much Is True on HBO and uh, seek out some of Jody's other work. It's pretty amazing. Indeed. Hey, uh, Ben, it's time to pay the bills. Let's do it. So uh, our fine sponsor, Aperture, maker of all kinds of uh, wonderful lights. And I've talked about it several times in the show before, and we even did a giveaway through Hot Rod Cameras. They make a little tiny light called the MC, and it's an RGB light. Finally, one of the more hotly anticipated versions of this light is now coming out. And essentially, it's all the goodness of the MC times four. It's essentially four lights in a travel case. And what makes mm-hmm. this travel case interesting is that you don't have to take the lights out out of the case or even plug them into anything to charge them they bring the same sort of wireless charging technology that exists for cell phones and they put a a, four of these wireless charging pads essentially in a case you throw your lights in there and voila your lights charge in the case and when you you know carry the case to your location you open up the top and boom they're ready to go it doesn't cost that much extra it's about an extra 50 bucks uh maybe it's actually take the back maybe it's like 70 bucks or something like that but it's uh, Mm -hmm. usually 90 bucks a light and Instead of 90 bucks a light, now it's 449 and you get this really cool case travel. And let me tell you, no one's going to want just one of these lights anyway. Most people who have bought them usually have bought like two or three anyway, because it's the type of thing you just throw in the background. It's a little light here. It's a little effect light. Uh, having them in this case that charges them like this is a really handy and novel thing to do, uh, especially since you don't have to deal with USB cables or any of those things trying to you know fumble around in it. Literally, you throw it in the case and you're done. Can I suggest that DJs get three of them so it can be three MCs and one DJ? <laughs> That's a little Gen X joke for everyone Ooh. who's a big Beast Boys fan. Sorry. <laughs> uh, three MCs and one DJ. Not two turntables yeah. and a microphone. That's a different joke, but that would be a Beck joke. Also for Gen X. Yes. Uh, yeah, we're, we're the only one who gets those jokes. Uh, all right. <laughs> so, There's so a then. lot of us. We haven't all died of old age yet. There's still plenty of Gen X alive. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're, 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 well, there's two of them right here, but you know, <laughs> how many more? I don't know. I, I think that some of our our generation's so small, and some of them have already sort of like adopted the mindset of baby boomers, and others have adopted the mindset of millennials. So I think of the actual Gen X, it, it's small. There's not a lot. Really, we've we've been assimilated. We've been assimilated I, in both directions. I feel like it. I feel like we're we're really a small generation. You, so. know, you know what gets me actually is when someone my age, like someone I went to high school with, is like kids today, blah blah blah, and I'm like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> like, please, come on, kids today, listen to you, listen mm. to yourself. Get off you sound, my lawn. You sound like a dad in a John Hughes movie. Stop it. Another Gen <laughs> X reference. Ah, uh, yes, John Hughes. Thank you, John. Thank you, John Hughes. And now, short ends. Uh, okay, so Ben, it's time for our famed short ends. They're famous. They're they're super famous. It's official now. It was registered with the state of famousness. What's your short end uh, this week? What's your obsession? So uh, this isn't actually my obsession, but it's probably worth checking out. There's uh, a YouTube channel called Video Revealed, and it's hosted by uh, a fellow whose name escapes me, but he kind of walks through usually Adobe Premiere tricks. But I was watching one of the ones that he did on sound design, and I stumbled across something that as an Adobe subscriber, I was unaware of. Hmm. What's that? Adobe comes 
with a sound effects library that you can download. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's under Adobe Audition Downloads. Uh, We can put the link in the show notes. For those of you who are Adobe subscribers, you can just go there and download a metric fuck ton of sound effects. Welcome to Video Revealed. This channel is for anyone who's new to video production but want their videos to look their best. That is so loud. Sorry. It was like in my head. I didn't know that. That was uh, I. I clicked on the link, and and that's what I saw for video revealed. And so video revealed, you know, uh, not not a sponsor of this show, but they they probably don't need to. They they got eighty seven thousand subscribers. Yeah, no, uh, it's really good, especially if you're an Adobe user, because uh, he kind of goes through and shows you all kinds of stuff. And I have to say that I mean it, it's it's dopey that I need this kind of help. Not dopey on his part, but dopey on my part. But it's like, I'll go in there and I'll watch a tutorial and I'll be like, holy shit, there's a keyboard shortcut that I haven't been using. And I'll immediately fold it into my repertoire of keyboard shortcuts. Yes, uh, you know, I've seen you edit. You you are all keyboard shortcuts. You are Mr. Adobe keyboard sh- shortcut. I've never seen anyone shortcut their way through editing faster than you. Well, you've never watched Ben Hirschleder edit on an Avid, Oh, I my have. Friend. I have. No. But he's not ben using is, he's not using Premiere. Yeah, well, he doesn't know how to use Premiere because he's an avid guy and like he'll he'll fight you over that. But Ben Hirschleder is the Mac Daddy of of keyboard shortcuts to make yet another Gen X reference. Anyway, I think video revealed the Snake is, Plissken of, of avid he, editors. He is, but he, but with both eyes. Yeah, with both eyes. He could have an eye patch and a couple That's of true. knives and a gun, but you know that guy, that guy. Come will, at me, Hirschleder. Anyway, <laughs> he'll, um, he'll, he'll destroy any timeline in two seconds. So, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea for us to include video revealed uh, as a link, but I was just blown away because, you know, like I have a sound effects library, uh, mostly stuff that I've actually purchased. And, you know, it's like you always need to refresh it. You don't even really think about it, but like you'll start to notice the same sound effects turning up all over the place. And unless uh, yes. they're I mean, it's stuff like, you know, uh, Wilhelm you know, scream. Shoes walking on wood. Yeah, you're not going to pull. You're not going to be like, oh, my God, that's, you know, from, you know, this this collection or that collection. But like, for instance, um, there's a collection that I have from Video Copilot called Motion Pulse. That's awesome. And it's great. But it's like every time I hear that their sound effects used somewhere else, I'm like, ah, someone's got Motion Pulse. So like <laughs> you, so sound effects uh, are, are a thing in post that you're constantly needing to upgrade. Well, if you have Adobe Creative Cloud, you have access to a pretty massive sound effects library right there and you've already paid for it. What do you know? And I remember back in the day when um, Final Cut Pro had Soundtrack Pro, it actually came with a million miles of sound effects and loops. And I, you know, because I paid for Final Cut Pro Studio, I've kept those. A lot of them are AIFF files, which still play fine today. But I, I always wondered, like, why doesn't Adobe do something like this? And they, it, it's not just sound effects. They also have some temp scores that you can use. They also have sound loops you can use, like music loops. Very handy stuff, especially if you're doing anything that's kind of corporate. But honestly, even when you're doing narrative stuff, sometimes you got to sc- stretch what you have a little further, and it's always good to have a library of this stuff. So uh, our Adobe users, check it out. Our Final Cut Pro X users... I'm sorry that you chose Final Cut Pro X. <laughs> I knew there was a dig in there for the FCP people somehow. Worst, so. worst program of all time. Uh, all right. Well, uh, it's like know. if it's like if Clippy learned how to be an editing software. <laughs> That's how bad Final Cut Pro 10 is. Anyway. 
Well, uh, we try not to go too far down into the technical rabbit hole. And I feel like, though, the sound effects library is something that anyone can enjoy who happens to be have a Creative Cloud subscription. That That's wonderful. Uh, I'm also about to do something here that's slightly technical, which is the Fletcher Adcock camera comparison chart. Uh, this is something that's been going on for a long time. And uh, I'm really pleased to see that it's continuing to get its due. comes out once a year, and there's usually a list of about maybe the top sort of 15 cinema cameras available, and mm-hmm. they have to be available somewhere in the world. And uh, that's not to say that there aren't probably some other cameras out there that, that could use inclusion. But if you want to talk about who is sort of like in the top, you know, the top 15 uh, this is it. And it's got all the, the major names and things that you would, uh, who's the top one. What's, what's the top one? Yeah, uh, you know, they don't actually give you a ranking. Um, <sighs> they're just kind of like, you, know, you don't need a ranking. Really what this is, is this is for people who understand what the tech specs are for people. Who I understand just want what, someone to tell me what the good one is. Anyway, <laughs> Alexa mini LF. That's pretty, that's pretty much going to, you know, that's, that's going to take the top spot for a lot of people. There's some other people who will claim that the red monstro is the number one. Uh, there's yet other people who claim that the Sony Venice is number one or the Panasonic Veracam. There's a bunch mm-hmm. of different cameras out there. They all have uh, their strengths and weaknesses. And really what they're doing is they're giving you a, at a glance way to see all of the specs side by side by side. So you can go, oh, what's your base ISO? Oh, or what's your sensor size? Or what's this or that or the other, your frame rates? It gives you all of them literally at a glance and it's sort of similar to like a Consumer Reports, you know, Corvette versus Ferrari sort of, uh, you know, breakdown. So you can see how and many I think horsepower. That, that's actually an apt comparison because, you know, I was about to say something like, you know, one of my favorite cameras is the Veracam, but really it's the George Foyt that's holding the Veracam that that's making the images look good. The Veracam is, is a fine piece of, uh, of, of machinery, but uh, it's, it's all about the, the, DB. it's about the person. It's, yeah. It's about yeah, the, eyeball, the eyeballs behind the camera. And, uh, and I feel like a lot of those cameras that are going to be on a list like that, if you, you know, it's, it's going to be more about what's most appropriate for your project. That's true. And, and always, you know, the talent is more important than the technology. So if you can only afford your phone, but you're incredibly talented, go for it. Oh, I'm so glad you finally gave me permission to do that. All right. I'm going to go make my movie on my phone. (laughs) Well, enough other people have done it. My, some more successfully than others. (laughs) That's true. I've got the, I still have an iPhone seven S plus. So prob- I think that's still not. two generations better than whatever they used for tangerine. So, Oh, for sure. That was a five. It's yeah. true. <laughs> but unsane, I think was done on the eight. I, I, n- I never saw that one, but, uh, starring anyway. Blair, which is Josh Leonard. Come on, man. <laughs> Behind the times. Yeah. yeah. All right, Ben, who do we need to thank? Uh, well, first and foremost, as always, we need to thank Alana Cody who kicks all the asses, our producer and lines up all of these amazing interviews. And uh, in this COVID-19 situation, often is sitting in on the interviews, adding awesome questions that I neglected to have. Yeah, if Ben Hirschletter is like the Snake Plissken, then I'd say that Alana Cody is sort of like the Furiosa of our podcast. She is, you know, Whoa. kicking all the ass. She might only have one, you know, hooked, you know, cybernetic arm or something because... Uh, but that's yeah. high praise calling any, I want to be the Furiosa of something. Furiosa is one of the best characters in, in movie history. A hundred percent true. Okay. Uh, let, let's also thank, uh, let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz. Ben, what, ben what, Katz. Welcome to LA, Ben Katz. I, I don't think he's quite here yet. Uh, anytime now. Welcome to Barstow. wherever you are in Oregon <laughs> right now, Ben Katz. Welcome to the town of Tracy, California. <laughs> <laughs> Needles. One of these uh, in between places. <laughs> Needles. <laughs> Hang out in Needles, Ben Katz. Welcome to beautiful Needles. I don't know what's in Needles. I'm sure it's wonderful. If we have any listeners in Needles, please send us some pictures of Needles. Victorville. Uh, we, we, we also need to thank, as always, Kay Zalatrachi, who is not listening to this episode. Nope. 
Kays is kind of like the Daria of our of our crew here. You Daria, know? <laughs> <laughs> kind of sullen. Wearing yet another Gen X reference. This is like the Gen X uh, version of this show, where it's like if you were not in college in 1994, this will make no sense to you. Nope, not at all. Uh, all right, should we just make up some other people to thank? Uh, I mean, I like making up fake people. It's sort of part of my job. Jimmy, doing let's thank let's thank Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy, you're, you've been Arturo. wonderful. <laughs> Yolanda, thanks, Yolanda. Yolanda's the best. So, she hey, really is great. I, I know we got a few more uh, emails and stuff to read, but I didn't come prepared this time. So we'll have to do it the next next time out for, for you know, fans of the show. And uh, if you are still listening to this point of the show, you are a true fan. You are serious about your Cinepod. You're serious about your cinematography podcast. Please. Let's be honest. You're it. serious. You're serious about listening to us argue about stuff. It's not even really an argument. It's sort of like a faux argument. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but 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 here's the thing too. Uh, if you are listening to us, if you have not gotten enough cinematography podcast, don't worry. There's another episode coming right right up. But also, you could really help us by spreading the word and subscribing. You know, you'd be amazed how many people I've talked to Ben who listen to the podcast religiously, but haven't figured out how to subscribe. How it's do really they listen not hard. to it? They 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 go and they go. Oh, there's a new episode. I'm gonna go like lick, listen to it on the website, or they will download just that episode. I'm it like s- uh, such a podcast autodidact that in like 2006, I figured out how to do it on an iPod, a literal iPod. Good for you. Well and, uh, and, and I mean, like ever since then, I mean, I, I use an app called Downcast, but there's one called Pocket Cast. There's tons of, po- of apps. Stitcher. There's a million apps for this. Stitcher. They're usually dirt cheap to get and uh, they're, they're all free. wonderful. And a lot of times they'll like suggest other podcasts that you might like if you're listening to uh, certain podcasts. Uh, indeed, I, I saw us on a short list just the other day. Maybe I'll what? maybe I'll try to find that. Yeah, a short list for like you know great you know cinematography filmmaking podcast to listen to. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, whoever whoever put us on their short list, you're on my short list, buddy, Bucko. That sounded like a threat, but it really wasn't. It was just my <laughs> my short list of stuff that I love. Anyway. Uh, all right, Ben. Well, we'll be back next week with another fantastic episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Woohoo! Talk to you then. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Listener.